Romans chapter 16. We're finishing up the book of Romans. Next week will actually be the last message in the book of Romans. So some of you have asked, well, what are you doing next? I, I'm praying about it. So <laughs> pray for me as I make that decision. Um, we started the book of Romans back in the month of January, on the 5th of January, the year 2014. And pretty much every Sunday, outside of maybe some topical messages for the resurrection or Christmas, uh, we've stuck to it. And we've seen just amazingly what God has taught us over these years together. And so uh, just a way of, of reminding you where we've been. We started off in chapter 1. And uh, chapter 1 through 3 basically talked about the universal problem of our sin. Paul was very detailed in his presentation of the issue of original sin. That sin is a universal problem. There's no one in this room who is uh, innocent, that's devoid of sin in any way, shape, or form. We're all tainted by sin. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. And then in chapters 4 to 5, we talked about Paul detailing for us the only way out of that sin problem was justification by faith, which resulted in righteousness. See, in other words, to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. 100% perfect. And as I look around the room, you're a group of lovely people, <laughs> but myself included, <laughs> we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. Well, as I said, we've all tainted, we've been touched by sin as a common problem. Well, that's the, the issue. And so Paul describes to us how Christ was able through his sacrifice on the cross to provide a way of justification, a way that we can stand before God one day totally perfect totally righteous. And it's not a righteousness that comes from us. It's a righteousness that comes from Christ. And then in chapters 6 to 8, he talked about how we get this justification. And he explained to us that we were all dead in our trespasses and sin. And so it depicted us before Christ as being dead in our trespasses and sin. And then when Christ came into our lives, when Christ saved us, we were alive to Christ. For the first time, we were alive to do what God has called us to do. And see, that is a very important part of the gospel message. The idea that you are dead in your trespasses and sin, and you can't do squat to get out of that situation. See, we like to think somehow that we can earn our salvation. It just appeals to our flesh. So we think if we come to church or if we pray or if we help the homeless or, you know, feed the poor, whatever it might be, that somehow we're earning brownie points with God. That somehow we're able to do enough that God will, in the end, take all of the bad we did, which a lot of it is a lot, usually, and, um, and, and our, hopefully our good will outweigh our bad and God will say, sure, come on into heaven. We can't do that. Because we're all tainted by sin. He wouldn't be a just God. He wouldn't be a holy God if he was able to just fudge and, and 
Even though you flunk the class, he gives you an A anyway, like our schools do today, unfortunately. But he, he wanted us to understand in chapter 6 to 8 that we are totally in, unable, we have no ability whatsoever to help ourselves out of the situation. The only thing we can do is look to Christ, look to the Savior. And see, that's why it's so important when we celebrate communion, when we have our mission update, that we realize that, you know what, this isn't about just growing a, a big bunch of people here. That's, that's not what this is about. It's about spreading the word of God that affects change in the hearts and minds of individuals around the world. Not just here, but around the world. And so, in verses or chapters 9 to 11, he talks about the idea that we have been... The, the, uh, elected by God for salvation. And he talks about his elective purposes in history with Israel, with Christians, with believers. See, all those who come to Christ are come to Christ because God wants you there. He chose you. He selected you. And you can sit back and you can say, wow, that is amazing. Why would he pick me? I don't know. And we should wonder about that. That should be cause for praise to well up in our hearts. But I know a lot of believers who sit back and say, well, that's nice, but why didn't God pick my neighbor? How dare he not pick my neighbor for salvation? I don't know. Who knows? That's up to God. We, We can't call him on things like that because God is totally just. God is totally holy. We are not. We're dealing with a fallen nature. We're dealing with a fallen mind. And so logic plays no part into God's purposes. And then in chapters 12 to 13, we talked about living in the real world. We talked about different gifts that God has given us and how that we should relate to the world and the government and all those kind of things. And then in chapters 14 to 15, he talks about certain things of the conscience, how we should um, treat certain things that maybe aren't, prescribed for us in the Bible exactly, thou shalt not do this or that. Well, how does that affect your brother in Christ? And he, we talked about all that. And then in chapter 16, we finally get to chapter 16, we talk a little bit about relationships. We're talking about Paul's heart. We're talking about how Paul ministers to people. And we've seen so far his unifying heart, his satisfying heart, his bold heart, his ministering heart, glorifying heart, missionary heart, planning heart, praying heart, Giving heart, loving heart, protective heart. And last week we looked at Paul's gracious heart. And we talked a little bit about grace. We talked about how amazing grace is. That God would shine on us. That God would give us something we don't deserve. That is just amazing. When we deserve hell and wrath and judgment from God, he says, no. You know what? Because my son secured your salvation, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to give you something that is totally uh, the opposite of judgment. And then we talked a little bit about common grace, that everybody experiences grace to some degree. It rains on the just and the unjust. We all breathe air. That's all by the grace of God. And then we spent a little more time dealing with saving grace. And we talked about three kinds of grace there, electing grace out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, redeeming grace, and efficacious grace, the grace that actually uh, causes us to be saved. 
And then we talked about abounding grace, persevering grace. And the thing in the end, we applied all this. We said, you know what? We need to be settled in the great doctrines of grace. We need to understand our Christian foundation. That it's not built upon how much we know or how long we go to church or how long we pray. It's built upon the grace of God. And we need to grow in the knowledge of God's grace. So many times we take it for granted. When I was watching that video about freedom, so many times we take for granted the freedom that we enjoy every day. I mean, there are countries in this world, beloved, where we could not do this. We would be under threat of persecution. Uh, You know, and we, we just take it for granted. We shouldn't take God's grace for granted. Third thing we said was we need to exercise the gift of serving others that God has given each of us. We've all been given God's grace through gifts that he's equipped the church with. And then lastly, we said we need a continuing supply of grace in order to complete the work that God assigns for us. You know, it's kind of like when you go to school and the teacher says, come here, I have an assignment for you. That's what God does for us as believers. When we get saved, he doesn't say, oh, okay, you just get to relax and sit up in the stands and watch everything go on. Don't, don't worry about doing anything. He never tells us that. Christianity is not a spectator sport. All right, he calls us out of the stands and he says, you know what? How are you going to serve me? How are you going to serve my people? And he expects us to get busy. Well, today we want to look at Paul's contagious heart. Paul's contagious heart. And I'm just going to read the couple verses that I'm going to look at here in verses 21 to uh, 24, basically. But 24 is, we'll, we'll get to that. It's not in the ESV, and we'll tell you why. But verse 21 says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and, and Jason and Sospitor, my kinsman. I, I, Tertitus, who wrote this letter... Greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greets you. Now, you say, well, what, what does this mean? The one thing I want you to see is that Paul did not seclude himself from people. He did not seclude himself from people. Obviously, he was a brilliant theologian. He probably could have taught in any seminary. I mean, he was brilliant. But he was close to people. And as Paul ends this letter of, of Romans, he, his friends are kind of gathered around him. And they're in the home of Gaius, the person who's hosting them. Remember, it wasn't for probably another 300 years where the church actually started meeting in church buildings. So the early church, where did they meet? They met in people's homes. That's what it says in the book of Acts. You know, I mean, we take for granted that, okay, we have this beautiful campus and we have this beautiful, you know, place here. We got air conditioning. Wow, that's great. Some of you are going, yeah, turn it down, turn it up, you know, turn it down, whatever. But the important thing is, is we take all that for granted. You know, um, back then they didn't have a building they went to. They went from house to house. And Gaius must have had a pretty good house, so he was pretty influential in the community because he had a big house. He had a house big enough to house the church. And we're probably not talking thousands of people, by the way. We're, you know, probably 30, 40 people maybe. Who knows? But we see the heart of Paul here. It's, first of all, filled with love. But by nature, it's a contagious heart. People like to be around people like Paul. Why? Because he enjoyed their presence. 
you know, our society, studies tell us, have become a, a breeding ground for lonely people. It really has. Life in today's world is very much like that unwritten rule in elevators. You know what that is? No talking, no smiling, no eye contact, eye contact of any sort allowed without written consent of the management. Have you ever got an elevator? I mean, what do you do? Stand you just stand there. I mean, I'm kind of a shy person, but once in a while, just to light people up. How you doing today? You know, where are you going? What floor are you going to? You know, they're just, oh, they don't know how to respond. You know, we need to be a little more proactive, engaging people. A survey was taken in a suburban area of Houston, and they said, what, if you go to church, why do you go to church? What motivated you to go to church? And, you know, this isn't a, I'm not a big statistician, so I, you know, some of these kind of question, but this survey was kind of interesting to me because it had some surprising answers. It said 12% of, those, of, 12% of people chose their church because of prior denominational affiliation. In other words, well, we went to a Baptist church before, we're going to a Baptist church now. 12%. 8% chose their church on the basis of the way it looked, the architectural beauty of the structure. 3%, this was kind of unnerving to me, but 3%, Chose the church because of the person that taught in the pulpit. (laughs) Only 3%. Isn't that crazy? It seems like that should be kind of important. Not because I'm important, but because the the message that the person's giving. But only 3%. 18% chose their church because of the convenience of location. Kind of understand that. 21% because of people in the congregation who went to the church whom they respected. But listen to this, a whopping 37% of people were influenced by the fact that friends and neighbors took an interest in them and invited them to that church. 37%. You know, you're not going to win people's hearts and, and minds by you know, handing out mass postcards, come to church. That's, not, that's never worked. It really hasn't. I remember we tried that when I first came here. We had a little video, the, 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 the story of Jesus or whatever. And we went around the neighborhood one couple Saturdays and had a little bag and a little greeting thing. And, oh, we're going to half the people. Say, ah, get out of here. We don't want your stuff. You know, We live in a very um, affluent area, but we also live in a very spiritually dark area right here on the peninsula. Right here. They call it the dark corridor, you know. From, from San Francisco down the peninsula right to, you know, and this whole area right here. Less than 4 3% roughly go to any church. That includes all the cults. That includes Catholics. That includes everybody. Less than 4% go to any church. And you say, what? Well, you think about it. I mean, even the mega churches that are full every week, that's just a, a small percentage of the people that live here. And most of the people, if you get out there and talk to them in the neighborhood— you know, uh, they're burned out spiritually. Oh, I've been to church. I don't, I don't go to church. I don't go to church. Bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, well, come on. One more doesn't help. 
hurt, you know, come on, bring, bring, bring your whole family. Um, but see, we need to take Paul to heart here because we can make all the difference in the world and we can make that difference for all of eternity. That's the important thing. That's why it's important when we send out missionaries. We're not just doing it so we can say, oh, we have a missionary in Honduras. No, we're doing it because we know that someone in Honduras is faithfully teaching these men how to exegete the Scripture and and disciple and to win others to Christ. And they're going to go to their country in South America and do the same. And it's, it's a wonderful way of investing into eternity. You know, everything we see around us, beloved, is what? It's, going to, it's temporary. I hate to tell you, it's temporary. That brand new car you just bought, it's temporary. One day it's going to be an old car. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I bought, bought my Impala like 20 years ago. It's not 18 years ago, maybe. But um, still got it, still running. Second gear slips a little bit, but... I'm going to run that thing right into the ground, you know. There's no sense putting any more money into it. So it's like, you know, but I remember when it was brand new. It was like, wow, this is so nice. Now my wife's like, well, I'm not taking that car. I'm taking the other one, you know. So I'm stuck with the Impala usually, but she's faithful to drive it when I'm driving the other car. So, But see, all the new things that we have, whether it's a house, it's all going to be burned up. And Paul had a... An idea of that. He said, you know what? He wants to invest in people. And see, a truly revolutionary heart is not just some visionary guy out there with great dreams and whatever, but it's a heart that loves people. It's a heart that wants to disciple people. It's a heart that remembers people's names. Some of us do that better than others. But it's a heart that has a, a real desire for the good Work and good word to the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a protective heart. It's a contagious heart. And so he lists here a couple individuals. And um, the beautiful Greek and Latin names here in Romans 16. These were real people. Okay, these, these were people who no doubt had sorrows and joys in their life. They had cares. They had hopes. They had trials. And they all drank from the common cup of human experience. We're all in the same boat. But these were special to Paul because they were his brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, It's exciting because someday in glory, when we're all in radiant white (laughs) in our glorified bodies, we're actually going to be able to walk and talk with these people. Isn't that amazing? Uh, one of the primary reasons that Paul loved them so much is because they shared that faith in Christ. One hymn writer wrote this. He said, For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, Paul comes to this part of the chapter 16, and it's really a, a doxology. It's kind of his closing thoughts. You know, you remember, maybe you remember growing up in church as I do, singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Yeah, you remember that. See, that, that, that's a doxology. That's saying, okay, we wrapped up here, now let's go get it. And, and see, that's what Paul is doing here. But he points out some of these faithful friends. And I just want to take a couple moments because we had communion. We don't have a lot of time today, but we have you know, 15 minutes here. In, in verses uh, 22, or 21, there to, to 23, first he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Timothy was somebody who worked right alongside of Paul. Paul was his father in the faith. And he was, he was always looking out for Timothy. But even though Timothy was younger and maybe a little less experienced than Paul, look at how he puts it. Timothy, my fellow worker. You know, he didn't say, oh, Timothy, my servant. <laughs> you know, my water boy. No, he said, my fellow worker. Why? Because he was working just as hard for Christ as anybody else. And you can see how Paul interacts with Timothy in some of his other uh, epistles, First and Second Timothy specifically. But he's writing this book to, to the saints at Rome. Now remember, Paul at this point had never been to Rome. He never visited them. So some of the people around Paul, when, when he's concluding his thoughts here, actually knew the folks in Rome. And so Timothy was one of them, and he says, hey, you know what? He's a faithful friend. He's my fellow worker. He greets you in the Lord. And then he mentions Gaius in verse 23, who is host to me and to the whole church. That's why I said he must have been a very influential man. We don't know what this guy did, but he obviously had a lot of money because he had a big house because he was always hosting people, especially the whole church. And he says he greets you as well. And then he mentions Erastus. Look at this individual. Paul describes him as the city treasurer. So this wasn't some little, you know, podunk town here. We're talking probably 700,000 people. And so when he mentions the city treasurer, this is somebody who wields a lot of responsibility. I mean, he pays the checks. He writes the, you know, all the people that work for the city. All this stuff goes on. He keeps track of everything. Very influential individual. And he wants people to know that, you know what, this, this is important. They greet you. And then he says, our brother Quartus greets you as well. Now, what's interesting that I, I found out as I, I studied through this, Tertius and Quartus are basically two slaves. They're slaves in the house of Gaius. And uh, Barnhouse basically mentions when he went to Hong Kong, he stayed in a very influential home, and the owner had three or four servants. Back then they called them slaves. Today they called them servants. But whenever he would address one of the servants, he would just say, boy one, come here. (laughs) Boy three, come here. And he numbered them that way. And it seems kind of rude to us, but that was literally their name. That's what they, they, how they worked. And the higher up 
the rank you went, boy one, he, he was the one that, who had all the responsibility of the household. And every, all the other servants would answer to him. Well, that's what you have going on here. These are two slaves. Tertius basically means third. <laughs> it's a common name for a slave. slave. And then quartus means, what do you think? Four, right. And so when you stop and you think about it, uh, that's just how they kept track of who their, their servants were. Now, you know, they didn't keep them in the back shed. These were people that actually lived in the beautiful home of Gaius. So they enjoyed all the, the household just like everybody else. You know, they weren't disrespected, and we're going to see that here. You know, today we think of slaves or servants. We think, oh, how horrible. That's, that's not the way to, to do things. But you know what? To some people growing up, it was actually a blessing. We don't see that in part of our history as a country. But a lot of slaves who were, were slaves, were, a tremendous amount of them were obviously mistreated. But there were some who actually had people who really cared for them and their families. And even after they were free to go, they chose not to. They said, no, we're going to stay here. This is, this is better than what we would do anywhere else. And I understand that's not the majority probably. But see, back then, it, that's just the way the culture was. And so here we have Tertius, who was uh, number three on the, on the list there, you might say. And when you, when you stop and think about it, he has Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sopater, my kingsmen, mentions those people. But when he gets to Tertius, he's one of the slaves. And the reason I say that these weren't people who were mistreated was he says, who wrote this letter? I mean, think about it. This guy is a servant in the household of Gaius, and he's not even the, the number one servant. He's number three on the list. And yet, he's given this tremendous responsibility to be Paul's kind of scribe, to sit there and say, okay, what's next? <laughs> so there were very educated people. And he was obviously qualified to do this. And so you would have slaves named Primus, Secundus, Tertius, Quartus, Quintus, whatever. But number three here was Paul's amanuensis, they call it, the guy that was able to write for Paul, you know, um, when he needed it. He was a scribe. He recorded the very words of God that came out of Paul's mouth, and he wrote them down. I mean, that's... That's a pretty amazing feat. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says this, I, Paul, writing this greeting, then he says, with my own hand. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. See, he would, he would write a portion of all the letters, but there were times when he couldn't write. Maybe... You know, that thorn in the flesh was too much or whatever. Who knows? Some people thought he had bad eyesight. He couldn't see. Who knows what it was? But he had someone alongside of him to write. And this guy was trusted by Paul. And he was obviously equipped by the Lord to be there because he was a brother in Christ. And so he's, he's giving responsibility to this person. And then you had Quartus, the other servant, 
Basically, it's just referred to him as a, a brother there. It's not a, not a number, but it's a, it's a brother in the Lord. And so you have these two slaves, these two servants, and in the same sentence are mentioned Gaius, who owns everything there, that, where they're staying, and Erastus, who was the city treasurer, the city manager. The word there, city treasurer, is oikonomos, and it means someone who would manage affairs. And Corinth, they suspect, was probably uh, about 700 to 750,000 people at the time. So you had these two prestigious leaders in the community, and then you had these two servants. Isn't that a picture of the church? See, that's what the church should be. You have two prominent men. There's not, no status or position really attached to them within the church. And then you have two servants or slaves, and yet we're all drawn together to be a building block of the spiritual building that God is building. And so you have all kinds of categories within the church. You have friends and schools and neighbors and all kinds of things that you, know, you may be drawn to somebody else because of sports or whatever. But we're all friends in Christ. We're all part of that body of Christ. And there's nothing like friends who share a commitment to the gospel. There's no greater cause than the cause of Christ. There's no greater effort than a, a flourishing church who is, is willing to go to the foreign lands and share the gospel. And sometimes right here in our own community, it seems like it's a foreign land at times. And we, we should not forget that. And so the doxology of life for a Christian, here it's Paul's, but for the Christian, it's, it's not devoid of people when you stop and think about it. I mean, we all have faithful friends in our lives. We have people that we've prayed with, that we've knelt with, that we've cried with, that we've laughed with. We have family, we have ministry partners, we have disciples, mentors, people who are examples to us, older men. I remember when Al Swanson was alive and I'd go down the street and visit with him and just ask him things about life. And I remember how, how much wisdom that man had. And it was just so hard for him to get it out in his closing years. I mean, he lived almost to be 100, I think, but, you know, 90-some. But it was amazing to think, wow, this, this man has gone through so much. I remember when him and Jerry Sheevy were down here helping us remodel the church and we were pulling out nails out of the floor. And I was down there pulling them out with him and, and these guys had, you know, Jerry Sheevy, he had uh, macro degeneration in his eyes so he had these great big goggles, <laughs> you know, this mask and these goggles on. And I just remember every time he'd look up and look at me, I'd be like, whoa, dude, you know, this is weird looking. But we're all pulling out these nails and I'm throwing mine in the trash can and say, Pastor, what are you doing? It's like, what do you mean? What are you doing with those nails? I'm, I'm putting them in the trash can. Put them over here in this can. I'm like, why? We're going we're gonna to go straighten them. You're going to straighten the nails for what? We're going to use them. Why? See, they, they lived through an era of life where you needed to do stuff like that. 
You know, that you don't just throw stuff out. And see, we can learn from having those kinds of relationships one with another. And we're all in this together. The most important thing in life outside of Scripture is to surround yourself with people who are what you want to be. Surround yourself with people who you look up to. You know, it's, it's amazing how God continues to form and knit together this little church, Grace Bible Church. You know, people come, people go, but you know what? There's a core of people here that really have a strong bond with each other. And it's been that way long before I got here. And I praise God for that. Well, just in closing, what can we, what can we draw from these couple comments here? You know, we've seen people who really appreciate uh, the early church. They were part of it. They served it. But I think one of the first lessons that we can do, and this isn't, I don't think it's in your outline or up on the screen, but is simply this, the reality of genuine Christian fellowship. We have to understand and get back to the reality of genuine Christian fellowship. There's no better picture in all the Bible of genuine Christian fellowship than this snapshot of these believers here who are gathered in Corinth. I mean, this is so important for us to see. It's not based on prestige. It's not based on how much money they have. They simply ignore all the differences that they have with each other. It didn't matter whether one was a servant or one was the city treasurer. Because they all came together. Why? Because they were all followers of Christ whether it was the master and the slave, the Roman and the Greek, the Jew and the Gentile, the rich and the poor. It was a real, actual oneness. Absolutely above and beyond all human distinction. Second thing, so the first thing is the reality of genuine Christian fellowship. The second thing is each one's special calling to serve Christ. We touched on this a little bit last week. You know, it was an impressive thing here. They gathered all these people together, and they were meeting in this house of of Gaius of Corinth prior to leaving for Jerusalem. It suggests that others should have followed them in their calling. Gaius could not be an apostle, but he served Christ. He didn't rise to the level of Paul but he served Christ by, how did he do it? By opening his home for Christian meetings, for hosting travelers, maybe missionaries. Erastus couldn't travel with Paul. Why? Because he had responsibilities. He was the city treasurer, the city manager. But what did he do? He served the Lord as a public official in the area of Corinth as a Christian. Tertius, as I said, wrote down Paul's letter I mean, we were not told what Cortes did, but he probably had duties as well. See, and it's the same thing for you and I. We all have our unique calling. We, we all have something that God has given us through Jesus Christ, and we're called to serve him, to do it to the best of our ability, to do it well. We're not to go around trying to do somebody else's job. Just do what God has called us to do. You know, that's what he, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19. The body, speaking of the body of Christ, has what? Has many parts. 
many parts. And all the different parts don't look alike. They're all different. But it's one body. It's one body. You, know, may, you may not be an apostle. You may not be able to serve God as a missionary. But maybe you can open your house to believers who are in need. Maybe if you don't have a house to open, you can open your heart to believers in need. You know, there are many closed hearts in this world we live in because it's, it's stained with sin. It's a harsh world. And what, a, what is it, encouragement it is for people when we open up our hearts and we begin to share what Christ has done in our lives. Thirdly, not just the importance of genuine Christian fellowship or understanding each special calling, but thirdly, the importance of people the world thinks is in, insignificant. The importance of people who the world may think is insignificant. Uh, Tertius, he was just a slave, as Quartus was. But you know what? We may not have had this book if he wasn't there. <laughs> you know, God used him in a miraculous way. And see, sometimes, you know, we live in a society where we respect wealth and affluence and all that. And that has no place within the body of Christ. None at all. Matter of fact, the Bible says that those who are insignificant are really the ones who are the most significant to God. And we need to remind ourselves of that. And then the last thing is simply the importance of world missions. Because there is a lesson here for world missions. Here are, think about it, Roman slaves, people who literally had no status at all in the ancient world. And yet, they were contacted by Paul and other Christian missionaries who apparently brought them to faith in Christ, and they became members of the local church. Barnhouse asks his questions. Are you interested when you hear that there are new believers in an Indian tribe in the upper Amazon? Does your heart go out to those who are worshiping in a church in Africa whose mud pews are baked in the sun before the mud walls are built around them and the palm roof goes over them? Quartus knew nobody in Rome, and nobody in Rome had ever heard of Quartus, but he loved them, and he wanted them to know it. See, there's something about the love of Christ that causes our hearts to reach out to the less significant people. God has his people in all these different places strategically placed, and they're there for the express purpose of using us as individuals to go out into this lost and dying world and to what? To share the gospel of Christ with the person at the grocery store, with the person at the gas station. You know, I've, I've had a real uh, fun time spending some of my time ministering outside these four walls and just getting to know people who maybe never come to church. But you know what? Uh, even though we don't have Christ in common, because I spent a little time talking to them or, or helping them in some way, uh, if I see them in the street, they'll come over and they'll talk to me. And I'm thinking, maybe God will open up the door one day to their heart and they can come to Christ. And that's how we should really envision our role. You know, as we focus on communion, we focus on the sacrifice of Christ, we focus on our church, sending out missionaries. Don't ever forget that all those things involve people. And if we forget about people, we really forgot about the cause, the reason why we're here.
Father, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, we pray that we would emulate, that we would be uh, examples of Paul's heart, that he did have a contagious heart, that he no doubt was a very brilliant man, but he also just had a really love for people. And it didn't matter whether you were the city manager or a servant, that he was willing to reach out and to, to communicate and to spend time with and to establish a relationship with. And Lord, we long for that day when we will be in your presence and all the walls will be torn down. It won't matter how much is in our account or where we live or what kind of car we drive. The only thing that will matter on that day is what we have done with your son. And if we have trusted him and we have put our faith in him and we trusted in his sacrifice on the cross, the Bible says that we can be rest assured that you are coming back for us and that one day we will be ushered into your presence. However, the other side of that is for those who are not ready for your return, those who have not expressed interest in, in your uh, good news, that you would uh, do that work of drawing them to yourself, that you would do that work of opening their eyes to their own sinfulness before a holy God. And Father, that you could truly uh, communicate your love to them cause them to repent, turn away from their sin, and turn to the Savior. Cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that, when it's prayed from a sincere heart, when you trust in Christ, God will hear that prayer and answer it, make you a new creature in Christ, forgiving all of your sin, clothing you in his righteousness. And Father, we thank you. And we pray that we be reminded as believers when we leave this building here today that we have a task ahead of us, that you have not called us just to be servants of the flesh here in this material world, but Lord, there is a spiritual world that you have called us to, and Lord, I pray that our eyes would look upward, and that we would make investments in eternal glory by sharing the precious gospel of Christ with those who have yet to hear. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.